All right. Well, I just want to open with a little bit about Jason and I. We uh, were youth and young adults pastors once upon a time. We've literally done every area of ministry, I think. And like even down to children's ministry, which I said at 18 years old I would never do. I was like, I'm not doing that. Nope, I'm not doing it. And God was like, yeah, actually you are. We need your help. <laughs> so we have done almost every area of ministry, but we were youth and young adults pastors in Phoenix for about six years. And there we kind of live by this mantra of don't ask for permission, just ask for forgiveness. Anybody know that mantra? You've heard it? I'm, I might be mutilating it, but I might not be because the reality is, is I went to look for who said it first and I couldn't find the person that said it first. And every time I saw it quoted, it was by a different person with slightly different text. So I just decided that I said it first today. All right. So we went, we live by this mantra of like, don't ask for forgiveness, ask for, or don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. And to the end of like literally every Sunday night, we would have this, this part of our young adults ministry that was called the spot. And on the spot, our whole goal was to make it as ridiculous as possible. And we went so far as literally tasing someone on stage <laughs> to be ridiculous. And you might ask why, and there was no why, it was just ridiculous. We were young and fun and we just decided to. So, you know, we were trying to figure out how to reach people. So we thought tasing people might help. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, the poli a police officer lent us their taser. So <laughs> it was, but it was one of those times where we usually got away with most things. Like never got called into the pastor's office <laughs> until that next Monday. And Pastor Daryl, he was our executive pastor at the time. He has called us in like, all right, I heard um, that you tased someone. <laughs> and we're like, we did. They lived. It's fine. And he, you know, he was like, it's one of those moments, like, as a parent or a, a person, you're in someone's life, and you're, like, kind of proud of them because they thought of something so great. But then you're also, like, you can't do that. <laughs> you have that? That happened with my son kind of recently, and we're like, oh, that's good for you, but also don't do that ever again. Um, so, you know, it was one of those things. We just, like, lived with that mantra, and, and most of the time we just got away with it, so it was fine. We rarely had to ask for forgiveness. That was one of those situations, though. But the, the reality is, is that many of us, live by mantras that were not God-designed mantras, okay? Like, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. It's not a God idea, right? But the reality is we all live like that. I have several. I'll, I'll just list a few that you might be acquainted with and maybe even liked and shared on social media, okay? So one of them's just do it. That's Nike's idea. It sounds great, but just think about it for like half a second about how that could go wrong, right? The other one is live your best life. How about this one? You do you, boo. <laughs> success, Tony Robbins said this. I'm actually sort of shocked that he said this, but success is doing what you want to do, when you want, where you want, and with whom you want, as much as you want. Oh, I don't see that being very good. That could end really badly. <laughs> I don't, I could die from that potentially. That doesn't sound successful to me. <laughs> Damon John said, success is waking up every day and doing what you want to do. Hmm. I have a few screen images pulled from social media directly. So some of them are from your social media account. So I will try not to say names. Just kidding. All right, here's one. If it makes you happy, no one else's opinion should matter. What's the next one? Just do whatever makes you happy. Hmm. 
If it makes you happy, go for it. This is my funny, I think this is the funniest one I've seen. Find someone that makes you laugh and you will be happy forever. <laughs> Any married people in the room disagree with that statement? <laughs> Might be why our divorce rate is 60%. I'm not sure, but if that's what we're working off of, it's not going to end well. <laughs> Uh, believe in yourself and anything is possible. Oprah Winfrey said, what did Oprah say? You become what you believe. No, I cannot be an astronaut. I am not smart enough. Even if I believe I'm an astronaut, I am not an astronaut. I cannot. There's only so far I can go with that statement. Obviously, all of these statements, right, are meant to encourage us and motivate us. They're meant to make us strive and to go for something that we would normally not risk going for. But the point is, every single one of them is about what? You. They're about me. They're about what do I want? How am I going to be successful? What do I, I'm just going to take so if my me and your me runs into each other, but you're doing your me and I'm doing my me, and we end up colliding and it's not going over so well, who wins? Right? So the reality is we live life by these mantras that seem really at face value basic and at face value just encouraging. But the problem is we're actually all trying to do them. And we're running into each other like, but I'm doing me and what you're doing doesn't make me happy. So now we have a problem. As opposed to the idea that God probably has a way that he actually calls us to live our life. Problem is if we're living our life this way, on, on these kinds of mantras, these ideas, our relationships are crumbling and we're like, what's going on? I don't understand. Why isn't things working? I'm doing this. I'm doing exactly this and things still aren't working out for me. What about Tony Robbins when... Like, like my success with the person I want to do whatever I want to do with, what if, what if they change their idea of wanting to do that with me? See, we have a few reasons that our, crum our relationships are crumbling, and it's because we're living life with these mantras. We're living according to worldly mantras and not biblical truths. When we mess up, we don't follow through with the asking forgiveness part. You know, the beginning, the first mantra I told you? We don't ask for forgiveness. We're prideful and unrepentant and decide that, no, it was still the best way. And lastly, when either of those things are playing out well, we blame everyone else and God for our situations. And yet we didn't use his design to get here. We used the world's design to get here. At first glance, these things, they seem tantalizing, right? They seem like great ideas. This is brilliant. I love it. They tease us with prospects of how our life can be so great. But the truth is our lives are crumbling and our relationships aren't working and me doing me is not working and just do whatever I want is not working and happiness is not found in a funny relationship where my person makes me laugh all the time. And we're devastated. So today we're going to talk a bit about God and how he has a way that we're to do our relationships, to do our lives. Our title of our message today is Permission Granted. So we're going to dive into 1 Peter, which is our overall uh, big picture like series we're in, which is like First and Second Peter. And it's a year-long series you're in the middle of. It's called You Are Here, but today's series is called Happily Before and After. It's our mini-series within our series, okay? So we're going to dive into this 
verse out of First Peter 3, 8 through 12. And it says this, finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you are called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing for the one who wants to love life and see good days. Anybody like that idea? That's biblical, so that's that's promising, right? (laughs) Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. When we read 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, the good life is reaped when we do what Peter suggests. However, everything about these verses are sacrificial in nature. Did you notice that? They take us holding back. They take us giving uh, somebody a blessing when they've cursed us. They take us sacrificing a part of ourselves and laying it down and allowing God to move through us instead. Take us sacrificing and and saying our flesh is not going to have its way today. You see, you already have permission granted. God's already lined out a playbook for how to do this life. And within those boundaries, we can have healthy, incredible, God-centered community. But the struggle for many of us as Christ followers is that we don't ask the kinds of questions about, God, what would you have me do for my life? God, how would you have me honor you? God, how would you have me honor my friends and my family and my brothers and sisters in Christ? Rather, we ask, what can I get away with that doesn't totally disobey? It's like, the question, the famous question of the dating couple who's trying to honor God with their life but also wants to know how far is too far. Well, if you're asking that question, you probably are, your motives are wrong from the beginning. All right, if we're asking the question of like, well, I'm gonna put this on my, my resume and it's not exactly correct, but it kind of represents what I've done. Or I can go to YouTube University and figure it out. So it's not totally not a truth. We've gone too far. (laughs) If any part of us is tempted to lie and be deceitful or any part of us is tempted to ask, you know, God, what, what can I get away with? We're missing the point. See, we struggle with this in our identities. We struggle with this in our physical relationships. Do we struggle with this in how we represent ourselves to people around us? It's easy to be like, oh, but I mean, it's a half truth. Well, it's also then a half lie, (laughs) right? I'm kind of giving you all of me, but kind of not. He's already provided guidelines for God-centered, community-driven relationships. So let's talk about those. We have three keys to the good life when it comes to relationships. The first is this, permission granted to show yourself a friend to all. You have permission to show yourself a friend to all. When we look at 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9, that's really kind of what it's basically covering. How to be a kind, loving, friendly person. Okay, but we're going to read it again. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another, be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. Since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. Here in 1 Peter 1, Peter lays out some guidelines for relating with two very different groups. The first is 1 Peter 3, 8. In this, he is calling Christ's followers to be like-minded. And we'll just stop there. 
Because most of us literally can't get past, can we put up the scripture? We can't get past the like-minded part. Peter is talking about a biblical unity, biblical truth, biblical ethic that we all adhere to and understand. Our problem is, in the last, I'd say just being really clear and specific, three years, like-mindedness is based on whether we have the same political party we're voting for. Like-mindedness is based on whether we have the same preferences. Like-mindedness is if we have the same ideologies. None of our like-mindedness is built on a foundation of scripture. So, unfortunately, what happens is when we're not like-minded and we don't agree, we just cancel each other out. Like-mindedness is built on biblical unity. Not something America made. Not something that our generation is trying to come up with a new ideology for because we don't like something in the Bible. Rather, it is built on this and this alone. So when we can all say, hey, we're going to be like-minded because our foundation is the Bible... And it is the truth of the Bible. It is that Jesus died on the cross. It is that Jesus rose again. It is that Jesus ascended to heaven. It is that Jesus is everything we need for salvation. It is, these are the truths, okay? When that's the case, then we can move, we can move on. Like-minded, sympathetic, oh, sorry, not quite. Sympathetic, compassionate, humble, brotherly love. So he's talking to Christ followers. This is how we do church together. This is how we do life together. This is how we do community together. We come together in humility. We come together in sympathy and compassion and in brotherly love, which is more weighty than friendly love. We come together being like-minded, understanding that we are all here for the same gospel and to represent the same Jesus. Schroeder from his first and second Peter commentary says this, when we look at all five words together, we see that obeying these exhortations would lead to smooth relationships within the church and with outsiders in most cases. That's promising, right? But let's admit it, those five words are hard enough, right? They're difficult. They challenge us. They challenge us, me, my perspective, my ideas myself. In verse 9, we see Peter invite us to respond to those who don't know Jesus to a whole other level. And also to some of you in the room, like some of us have had to practice this with each other, right? We're not to pay evil for evil. We're not to pay insult for insult. Instead, Peter goes so far as like, you have to do exactly the opposite actually and pay a blessing. I'm going to bless you? Have you ever had to say something nice to somebody that you just really didn't believe that was true? <laughs> it's so hard. That's where humility comes into play. The ability to bless people who curse you. The ability to bless people who, they're hard to love, but we're called to love. Peter says we can do it. He said it right here. He, he wouldn't call us to something, right? Jesus wouldn't ask us to do something he himself, one, wouldn't do himself. And two, that he, we can't do. So that's it, class of Smith, homework assigned. We'll see you in a few years when you got it all figured out, okay? <laughs> we see it further in uh, more places in the Bible. All throughout, we see this kind of parameter of how we do life as Christ followers and with non-Christians. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, 
If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Paul then takes it to another level in Romans, where he says this in Romans 12. He's going to break down essentially what Peter's saying, but be very much more specific. So, let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, instead associate with the humble, do not be wise in your own estimation, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Bet you wish I stopped at First Peter 3, right? <laughs> like, oh, that's a deep dive. Ugh. And also, what does it mean to fire, um, drop heaping coals of fire on someone's head? Essentially, like, your kindness is going to be what leads them ultimately to Jesus. That's actually a Bible verse. The kindness of the Lord leads people to repentance. So when we live that way, in such a way that is blessing, not curses, it is like, it's stinging, if a person knows they're in the wrong and someone's blessing them, that stings. You know, like when someone told you, like you thought you were so right, you were so right, you were so right, and then you found out that you were wrong and have to like humble yourself and admit that, that hurts. It's kind of like that, only like that person might not ever humble themselves and admit it. The reality is, is that like we see this way in which God asks us to live in gospel community with each other. And then how we as a gospel community live with the world. How we do life with the world. How we relate to those around us. 1 Peter 3, we're going we're gonna to talk about it again. 1 through 4, Jason briefly mentioned it on uh, last Sunday. But in the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. When they observe your pure, reverent lives, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like el el elaborate, sorry, <laughs> third service, uh, hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry of, or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So obviously we could break down a lot of things in here. Like, am I not allowed to do my hair? Because I just did my hair and I'm preaching. So no, that's not what Peter's saying. Peter is saying that your beauty is actually coming more from within than without. So that our quiet temperament, and this actually, we would see Paul speak to it too. He talks about the quiet temperament. It's not just one that is women are called to. We're all called to this place of peace and seeking peace and having this temperament of peace and quiet and reverence that shows people who God is. So First Peter here, he is talking to wives who are new to their faith and their husbands may not yet know Jesus. So he's saying, so that they know me, no, not Peter, but so that they know Jesus, you're going to behave in such a way that exemplifies that. You don't need to use words all the time. 
you're going to have a demeanor and a posture that exemplifies Christ. And so Peter's just asking us to do the same thing, that we would submit our, our flesh to God and ultimately we would have a posture with each other and with our world around us that exemplifies Christ and that the power is actually found in that, not in all the words that we think we know. Some of you know a lot of words and use the thesaurus too many times on Facebook. But listen, that's not the way that people, I don't, I frankly don't know of anyone who's been converted over Facebook. Do you? Okay. There, the reality is like our lives tell a story. People talk a lot. You know a lot of people who talk and they do not live the way they talk, Right? We all know people who call themselves Christ followers who are like, you are? <laughs> what were you doing last night? Right? You don't know those people? Maybe you are those people. Okay. Uh, <laughs> how we live tells a story of who God is. So why am I saying find yourself friendly? Well, like I said, what Peter's doing is just saying I'm approachable, I'm available, I'm committed to gospel community. I'm a lover of people. Proverbs 18.24 would say that a person who has friends should show himself friendly. Look, it's all in the Bible. You want friends, be a friendly person. As a pastor, we talk to a lot of Eeyore kind of people who um, are like, oh, I just can't get connected. I'm not finding any relationships. I'm not. And I would just say that a lot of times I struggle with not just saying, because you're not friendly. Change your face. <laughs> Smile. Be kind. <laughs> Don't grumble and complain so much. You ever have those people you stopped asking how they're doing because you just, nope, not going there. Like literally lists of people in my head. None of you in the room, but <laughs> the truth is we have, we have, there's a way that God wants us to present our lives that is open and approachable and loving and in community that we're doing this life together. So we're humbly honoring each other. We are trying to go above and beyond in loving each other and honoring each other. And to our world, we're not paying them evil for evil. Rather, we're blessing them. That is the call that God asks us to do. We are to show ourselves friendly. So when point one is employed as what I'll call like the code of the house, and for those of you who are maybe are new to the church, a lot of times like the church building is, or the church itself, the body of Christ is like the house of God. So that's why I say house. The code of the house, point two can then follow, right? You, only if point one is in play can this follow easily. Permission granted to assume the highest and employ forgiveness. So in gospel community, we should be able to assume that our brother or sister in Christ is not out to hurt us. The problem with the last few years is I think we're all just like expecting to be hurt. Do you ever kind of go around the world like that, like just waiting for someone to stab you in the back? And it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not out to hurt you. When point one is happening, when we are all committed to this like-minded, sympathetic, compassionate, humble, brotherly love kind of community, we can assume the highest of each other. We can be quick to forgive. Colossians 3, 12 through 15, we read it, but I'm going to read it in the message version. 
says, so chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place. Quick to forgive an offense. Mm -hmm. Forgive as quickly and as completely as the master forgave you. Listen, Jesus forgives as quickly as you go to repent to him. It's immediate. When I come and say, God, please just forgive me. I fall on my knees. I repent. I realize that I sinned. I realize I was prideful. I realize I was angry. I realize I just slipped out of line and, you know, name your sin. Name your thing. And I'm at his, on my knees and I'm repenting. And you don't have to get on your knees just so you know. That's just a statement. He immediately forgives and forgets. That's what Colossians is saying. As quickly and completely. That's how we're to literally do life with each other. As quickly and completely. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose, bra and underwear garment. Never be without it. <laughs> Guys, no bras, okay? Don't go without the other. That's love. Love is always. It's, a, it's the cloak in which we do everything, okay? And we're going to talk about love a little bit later and how we've kind of made that word a bit dysfunctional, but the reality is that's what we're to do life with. But it's difficult to forgive, right? Because we have all the reasons. Like, most of us could be great lawyers because we got all the reasons why not to. Let me just tell you what he did. As if God doesn't know. As if the person doesn't know. But we're called to forgiveness. Isaiah 43, 25, as I said earlier, Jesus forgives this quickly. I'm the one. I sweep away your transgressions for my sake. And remember your sins no more. That first part, for my own sake. Do you think that if God sweeps away our transgressions for his own sake, that there's not something to be said about how important it is for us to forgive for our own sake? We're called to forgive not just because we do that to be nice to someone else, not because we're holding anything over their head, not because they feel any ramifications of our forgiveness or lack of forgiveness, but rather because for our own sake, we must forgive. We are called to be forgivers. And then he goes on to say, and remember your sins no more. And unfortunately, I can't tell you that we can do that very well. We can't do that. We're just not God in that way. Jesus has that privilege. We don't. I think this is one of the hardest things for us to do as humans. Forgive, right? And sometimes it takes reminding ourselves that we have forgiven someone. Like, I've been re re through really, really painful things in my whole life, in the last few years. And I have had to remind myself that I forgave someone. I had to remind myself that, oh, my heart's getting icky again. Like, bitterness is seeping in. I got to go back and forgive them. I got to say it out loud with my words. Sometimes I got to write it in a journal. Sometimes I might have to hang it on my mirror. I forgave them, <laughs> right? It's difficult because, unfortunately, we can't forget. But just like God, God does it for his sake, we do it for our sake. Proverbs 19.11 talks about this a bit more. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Acts 24, 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Psalm 34, 14, which is quoted by Peter, seek peace and pursue it. See, when we are living with others in gospel community, we are 
all willing to uphold the code. We will call it the house code, call it the code of the house, whatever you wanna call it. We're all willing to live 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9. And when we're committed to that, we can do assuming the highest easily. We can do not taking offense easily. We can forgive easily and quickly because we know we're all committed to the same thing. So I know that my brother's not out to offend me. My friends aren't out to offend me. Um, Offense is a choice. And I know for some of us it's like, but did you know what happened to me? I didn't say it was a choice that was not really easy to make. I understand there's like victims and there's things that have happened to us that it's hard not to be, it's almost impossible not to be offended, right? But the reality is what we do with that offense, how we chew on that offense, how much it gets ingrained into our souls and who we are is where our problem lies, right? So we had a friend, this is kind of like really silly actually, but we had some friends um, back when we were like in our early 20s and they were our really close friends. Jason and I were obviously not dating, but I had dated Jason's best friend just for a few minutes. Super like, really like, honestly, it was so innocent that I didn't even really count it. Like, not one of my boyfriends, right? (laughs) So we had dated for like a brief second, and it was really like very platonic and very like, oh, it was so God-honoring actually, but it was really like healthy. So they end up, he ends up getting married to someone, and I obviously end up marrying Jason, and then we're all together because we're like best friends. We're in each other's weddings. I mean, that's how close we are. And they come over to our house one day, and we're like in our apartment getting it ready because it's new, Um, and Jason and I are going to be moving into it when we get married. And so we're getting it ready, and I find this like note or this picture from mine and the other person's relationship. And I was like, oh, how cute. This is when we dated. Ha, ha, how funny. Like so basic. I have no attachment to this relationship at all. So of course I'm not thinking anything of it. Like I, that's how I am. I'm just like casual like that. So, so I just sort of throw it out there and we all kind of giggle and then move on. So I think months later, months later, we don't have a relationship anymore. Like the friendship is completely burnt off and dwindled. Like we were close. And they just kind of started, like, ignoring us super. And we lived, like, our church was probably, like, one-third of this size (laughs) currently in this room. And so it was kind of hard to avoid each other. So we were like, okay, this is weird. What's going on? So finally we get together for dinner. And they said, literally verbatim, well, we knew you were joking. And that it wasn't, like, anything, like, weird or serious. But we, and we had tied you know, thought it was funny. And then the next day we decided to be offended. Literally the words were exactly what I just said. And I was like, hmm, why though? You literally could have just assumed the highest motive and we wouldn't be in this situation. Our relationship was never the same again. We clearly didn't have the same like understanding of relationship, right? And we can go into like whether it was wrong for me to joke like that or not, but I just, I know that I was right. So it's, you don't need (laughs) We don't need to. (laughs) 
But the point is that, like, how many relationship tensions would be avoided if we just assume the highest of each other? Like, these are our close friends, and clearly, like, we know that Erica just says random things sometimes that she probably shouldn't say out loud. So who cares? Like, if I just assume the highest, like, if Devon said something in a casual conversation, I would never take offense to something Devon said. Like, he would have to be so direct with me, like, I hate you, Erica. Look me in the eye and have an evil face, which, can you see this face? That's never going to happen. <laughs> like, I could never take offense, but I also could never take offense because I know Devon in a gospel community, and we both do gospel community the same way. So I could say, oh, if he did say something weird, I could either quickly brush it off and assume the highest, or guess what? The Bible tells us what to do if we're not at that place where we can just brush it off and we need to have a conversation. Matthew 18, 15 says to, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I'm not going to, alone, thank you. Not to everyone else. Did you hear what Devon said to me? I am pretty sure he meant this and this and this and this and this and I've created a whole case against him. And he, I go to him in Matthew 18 style, and he's like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you would think I would say that. I'm so sorry. No, of course I didn't mean it like that. Like, I would never think to do that. Tension dissolved over. So, obviously, I understand there's some deep-rooted things in this, like, conversation. There's really hard things to get over that we do to each other. But many of our conversations would demolish almost all of our issues and tension with each other if we would just say, hey, that hurt my feelings. I didn't like how you handled that. How do you really feel about that? Is that how you really feel about me? Ask questions. Have a conversation. Assuming the highest doesn't mean you shove it under the rug. It means that you seek peace and pursue it in your conversations. You go, hey, I don't want there to be any bitterness or anger or confusion between us and our relationships. So I just want to understand what you were saying when you said that. Or when you did that, that really hurt because that's not how I would ever treat you. Oh my gosh, I didn't even notice I did that. Or maybe I did notice and I need to ask for forgiveness. Yeah, you're right. I was actually really bitter that day. I was frustrated. I was whatever. Imagine if we did that in our marriages healthy marriages that you can just go, hey, how you talked to me just then was really disrespectful. And I know that you're caring a lot right now and that's probably what it's rooted in, but can you not do that? What would that do to all of our friendships and relationships? Gospel community. Okay, when point one and point two are inactive or unmendable, I'm gonna give you permission for another thing. Are you ready? The third is this, permission granted to reassess your relationships. Listen, due to some extremely broken redefinitions of some words that God actually designed and ordained, we as Christ followers are often in relationships we should no longer be in. in this, for the sake of forgiveness, grace, and love. Listen, there is such reality of forgiveness that doesn't include us remaining in relationship with people who have devastated us. There is the reality that forgiveness was granted by God. He's the one that taught us that, right? And while he can forgive and forget, that doesn't mean that we continue in relationships where we just can't forget the wrongdoing. 
And we have reestablished this idea of forgiveness to literally end up being like a doormat. Well, you're not a doormat. You're a human being who deserves honor, who deserves people to forgive and love them the same way you're loving and forgiving the, the person. But we've reestablished this idea of forgiveness just means, well, I forgave you, so I should just keep circling around you in your, and you being in my orbit and I be in your orbit. But only God can forgive. Listen, forgiveness means this, literally at the Webster's Dictionary version, the original version of it, to cease to feel resentment against. Then it means to grant relief from payment or forgive a debt, which is something that Jesus did for us on the cross. So does that have anything to do with community and doing life together? Not necessarily. It just means to cease to feel resentment, to not pay back evil for that evil. The next one is grace. Grace literally means unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. Are you God? Can you do that? We can't do that. We can be gracious people, right? That's when we assume the highest motive of someone. That's us being gracious. But we cannot grant unmerited favor. All of the definitions of grace are literally godly. The next one is a virtue coming from God. And then the following one is a state of sanctification enjoyed through divine assistance. So some forms of relationships that we are to stay in, God will give us the grace to stay in certain relationships. Others, he, there is no grace for that relationship. The last thing that we kind of have redefined, see, we've redefined grace as like, well, it's not being gracious for me to draw boundaries with them. What? No. It's not being gracious for you not to draw boundaries for you. The last one is love. We all know that love has been made whatever we want love to be, which really honestly dilutes love to almost nothing. It's our shallow idea of what love is. As humans, we're, we're really basic and shallow in what love is. The reality is God designed love. God created love. God gives the greatest kind of love, which is the kind of love that is unconditional, never-ending, never-ceasing, and ends-up-earth kind of love. We can't provide that kind of love. So when we love someone, love doesn't mean staying around people who have hurt us over and over again. We can love people from a distance. That's actually the healthiest kind of love sometimes. I love you. I'll pray for you. I will heap a blessing upon you from afar. <laughs> we, you might be thinking, well, where do we see this? It's all throughout the Bible. We have Jesus, Jesus and Judas. Jesus is sitting around the table with his disciples and says, one of you is about to betray me. Calls out that it's Judas. Poor Judas, like literally sitting in front of 12 people being called out. And Jesus tells Judas, go and do what you have to do. Does Jesus say, I'm going to come with you and do it too? I'm going to come with you. I'll just help it, make it easier for you. I'm going to stick with you. No, you broke up a, a relational, like, collateral that we had. So you're going to have to go do that on your own. I'm not going to stop you from your literal destruction, which Judas ended up committing suicide at the end of his story. He destroyed his life over his betrayal. I'm not going to go, like, I'm not going to go with you. On that, not that, you know, this analogy falls apart because God's always with us. But I'm not going to, like, chase you down to stop you from that. But I'm also not going to, like, I'm not going to watch it happen. 
Jesus set a boundary and said, you broke community with me, go do what you need to do. Paul and, si Paul and Barnabas, in Acts, we see in Acts 15, 36 through 39, we see Paul and Barnabas have a like moment of tension. These are two like apostles seeking to spread the gospel throughout all of Eastern Europe, Asia, you know, Israel, all the things, all the places, all throughout there. They're on the same team. They have the same idea of how we do community, yet they decide, you know what? You go your way, I'll go mine. And it was healthy, and it was good. And Paul later would even celebrate Barnabas. He would talk about Barnabas again later. And the reality is there's sometimes that we, we separate for seasons or for reasons that still lead us to healthy places and are healthy for us. Paul went on his journey, Barnabas went on his, and if they wouldn't have separated, whoever Barnabas affected with the gospel would have never been found, would have never heard potentially. I mean, you know, again, in God's grace, everything happens, you know, sovereignty and all that. But the reality is they went on their way and it, that was healthy. So you see healthy division and moments of healthy separation. You see moments of separation of like, just go do you, boo. That's where you want to live. Then you see Jonathan and David who have to separate because Jonathan is Saul's son and son, Saul hates David. And, and David and Saul, uh, Jonathan are like brothers, like super close, like one of the closest friendships you will see in the Bible. And they are so close, but they have to separate because Jonathan has to ultimately be loyal to his father, the king. They bless each other and move on. Then you see the Bible talk about husband and wife, right? It talks about in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, where she's just repeating like Old Testament, the idea that when you get married, two become one flesh and they leave their father and mother. That doesn't mean, like my parents live here, but I don't live with them anymore. I'm not shading anyone who does because there's a season that we did have to live together again. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is that you see healthy separation in the Bible, you see boundaries created in relationships in the Bible. So quickly, here's some relationships that need reassessing. The first one is those that lead you to evil. 1 Peter 3.11 says, and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. We like to play the game flirt to convert. I have literally one time in my whole life seen that work. And even still, I don't even know if they're still saved. <laughs> I'm not sure. We don't like to just flirt to convert in relationships, like dating relationships. We do it with our friendships. We do it with those closest to us that we're like, well, I just want to be gracious and I just want to show love. I want to show the love of Jesus. So I just need to be in that person's life. But the reality is there's moments where their bad company actually corrupts your good morals. That's the majority of the time what happens is that someone has to sacrifice something to be in that relationship. And it's not usually the person that's not sacrificial. It's the one who's trying their best to do the right thing, but then they end up with that person, doing life with them, in the same lane as them, making the same decisions as them. We can't be so prideful to think that we've got it all together enough that like we can just lead everyone to Jesus and no one's ever gonna affect us. I, I, I feel that confidence now. 
because I've been saved for a very long time and I have the conviction of the Holy Spirit as to what a healthy life looks like and what pursuing God looks like. But it isn't like, it doesn't mean I go out like to parties every Friday night because I can hang. Here's the thing. If you can't love without being led and you can't lead in love, then you are a follower. The only one you are to follow is Jesus. If you can't love without being led. See, you can love people from a distance. But you can't necessarily do life, that kind of love with them without following. The second one is this. Those that hinder you from growth. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15. And this dives in a little to what I was just saying. Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For who, for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? See, many of us try to do life with people who are not trying to do gospel community. I mean, frankly, within this church, some of us are trying to do life with each other when one of us is not trying to do gospel community. And that is the yoking that we are choosing to, to do. So the yoke is the idea of two oxen being yoked together. There's like literally the yoke that the oxen can then move forward, right? That keeps them in step with each other. I can't be in step with a non-believer because they don't believe the same thing as me. So where I'm going is different than where they're going. It's very practical. So what ends up happening often is because the strong person can't handle that weakness for very long, and I, I don't mean to call people weak, but that's the image, okay? Just get the image. The weaker oxen, they can't pull that weaker oxen for very long, so they end up stopping where that oxen can go. And that's the image the Bible's trying to give us. This isn't just about dating, which is what we always equate it to. This is about doing relationships with people in an intimate fashion. So it could be a best friend who you've tried to keep as your best friend for a very long time, but ultimately it's not, you're not going where you want to go because you're slowing down to meet them where they're at. Some of us can't do relationships with certain people right now because we just came out of addiction and we're just getting sober. And to be in that relationship leads us back down a path of addiction. So we literally have to set, cut the ties to say, I can't do that anymore. This is what that relationship looks like now. We can meet at a coffee shop, but I can't come to your home. Or if they're really poisonous and they're really, they're really just a trigger, I don't really like using that word, but they really end up taking you to a place where it just brings up too many memories. You literally might just have to cut ties does that mean you don't love the person? No, it does not mean that. And that is what our world has done us wrong in, is that we think love means we have to accept every single part of a person's behavior and decision making. That's not love. If my child does something wrong, he's going to be in trouble for it. It wouldn't be loving to him to not discipline him for that. Actually, it would be less loving. So there's gonna be relationships where in order to one, love myself and honor God, and honor my gospel community, I have to cut those ties. And I know this is hard stuff. It's not easy. 
There is moments, but the reality is, is that as you strengthen who you are in Jesus, and as you have strength of conviction, God will put you into the lives of people who may have a story that's similar to yours, where you can impact it. You may be able to go back to that friend 10 years from now and say, hey, I wanna do life with you, but I wanna show you the way I do life. But you may not have that strength of conviction yet to be able to do that. Alcoholics can't be around alcohol. You can't. There may come a season where you're strong enough to do that. But if that season's not now, you need to reassess your relationships. The last one is this. Those that continue to be unrepentant, remember these are relationships that need reassessing, or break your trust often. Not many of us, we don't like to talk about this part because again, it goes back to right our linguistic theft where we have defined forgiveness and grace and love in a certain way that keeps us in really broken and dysfunctional relationships. Relationships that are abusive, relationships that literally they're just out for themselves and we continue to be in those relationships because we think we're doing them a favor or we're being good by doing so. But the reality is that one thing we have to take seriously as gospel community is that your reflections reflect on me or your actions reflect on me. So, you know, we've seen some very public pastoral failures over the last few years. And some of you are like new to church. So you may be like, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it, just ignore it, move on. But those of us who maybe we've been in church for a long time and we know certain things and we, we have made this idol out of people and we have put churches and people on pedestals and then they have a moral failure and it demolishes everything we believe. Which it shouldn't. But the reality is, is that every decision that we make in a gospel community, it reflects on the community. So your decision to have that moral failure ends up making every church in the United States of America and across the globe question. Every person from outside looking in like, see, if that's happening in the church, I don't want none of it. It's not that it doesn't happen in the church. We're broken people. But in gospel community, we come with our face on the ground in repentance, realizing I haven't just affected my life, I've affected your life. I come with humility and honesty, and I come with authenticity, and I say, this is not how I wanna live my life. I understand that my decisions, because we're yoked up together, affect you. So in gospel community, I am committed to what First Peter asked us to do. I'm committed to that. And when I fall, I fall in repentance. And I fall saying, hey, I messed up. Hey, come help me. And then that's where my compassion can come in. Right? First Peter talks about, I can be compassionate and I can lift you back up and I can walk you through it. But when you're unrepentant and unwilling and you're prideful and you just choose to not say, nope, that wasn't wrong. You choose not to do that. It reflects on the whole community. It affects and it fractures us all. So the problem is, is that we think our life is so independent that it's just about me. No one else is affected by my decisions but me. But we are one reflecting a savior. So my decision first and foremost reflects my savior. Is he all powerful or not? Can he overcome your addictions or not? Can he heal you or not? 
can he put you back together or not? What do you believe? I know that he can, so my life is going to reflect that to other people. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says this really difficult thing about from Paul. He says, but actually I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. He says to don't even eat with such a person. Ooh. I read that verse like a few years ago. I was like, are you, what? Are you serious? Like, that's really rude. And that doesn't feel like love or grace or forgiveness. But who's he talking about? If you go back earlier, he's talking about an unrepentant person. He's talking about someone who calls himself a Christ follower but refuses to repent. So he's not being unreasonable because we all agreed to the code. We all said, we're going to do this. We're going to do life like this. We're going to do life like this for each other and for God. I'm going to love you as much as I love myself. I'm going to honor you even greater than myself. I'm going to show you more than you can show me. I'm going to forgive you above and beyond. I'm going to assume the highest motive of you. That's the kind of community God calls us to. But remember, we gotta have one and two. We gotta have one in place. Then we can assume two. And when that neither of those happen, then three might have to happen. And it's hard and it's devastating. But I think some of us can feel a little bit of relief in this moment because maybe you've been in some relationships where God's been trying to tell you, get out. This isn't going well for you. Who are you honoring? What are you trying to do? Listen, you are not people's savior. You cannot save them. Only God can do that, which should take some relief off of us that we're only to model who our savior is and that Jesus is the one that comes in. The Holy Spirit comes in and convicts and brings people to him. The kindness of the Lord brings people to repentance. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and stand. I want to pray over you. Maybe today you're in the room and you're like, well, this sounds like nice. I mean, it sounds kind of hard, but it sounds nice. And you don't even know Jesus. You're like, I don't even know that Savior you're talking about. Listen, Jesus was sent to die on the cross for your sins so that there would be no gap between us and God, so that we might have eternal life with him. And so I just want to encourage you today. Maybe today you're like, I need to make him Lord and Savior of my life first and foremost. I need to take the reflection off of me and my mantras and my ideas and realize that the good life comes through a Savior, and that's Jesus. So today we're all going to pray a prayer together, and I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with us. We're going to go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I accept you as my Savior. I know without you this life has little purpose. I know with you I have everything. I repent of my sins. I ask for forgiveness. Thank you for redeeming me and making me new. In Jesus' name.